Masal Harry, Sabal Harry, Harry to you wherever you tuned in from. This is the Justice Watchers podcast, where we tell the stories of brave individuals who strive to promote and protect human rights in our communities, where we unwrap closely knit empowering stories. The stories thread the DNA of those that pick up the hammer when the judge and jury exit the corridors of justice, of those that handle the scales where blind lady justice has left the balance unattended, of those who raise their voices outside the streets where the crowd has stopped agitating for their rights. This is the Justice Watchers podcast, a joint from the National Coalition for Human Rights Defenders Kenya. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, good whatever time it is from where you're joining us from. Uh, you are locked in here with me. My name is Obino Nyambane. I'm an activist and a staff of the National Coalition of Human Rights Defenders in Kenya, which is the Defenders Coalition. Um, welcome, and I'll be your host for this episode, where we will be candidly speaking about what it is, these stories. We are going to talk about the lives of activists and activism in Kenya. Now, um, I'm very honored to be seated here with a human rights defender who inspires many people from all spheres of this globe. Why am I saying this? I think we are going to find out uh, in a bit. For sure, I know that my guest, together with others, he has been part of the second and third liberation of this beautiful country that we call Kenya. And personally, I have benefited greatly from his guidance and mentorship over the years that I've grown to know him and worked with him. This, of course, ranges from others of um, personal growth and also as, as a professional. Now, uh, ladies and gentlemen, I don't know whether I should introduce him or I just say his name or just let him say uh, the name. But nonetheless, I think I'm too excited. I just want to say his name out loud. Welcome, uh, Kamau Ngugi. Thank you. How are you doing? I'm doing good. How are you? I'm fine. Yeah. How is your morning? Well, getting warmer, warmer in Nairobi. <laughs> so, of course, I'm also getting warmer. So, of course, I'm excited to be part of it. Fantastic. Good to have you. Uh, thanks for taking your time to join us on this uh, episode. Um, I just want you to let the world know. Because so many people have interacted with you uh, at a professional level, as a defender, you've worked with very many people. But who, who exactly is Kamau Ngugi behind the scenes? <laughs> Uh, Kamau Ngoge is uh, the only Kamau Ngoge. It doesn't change. He's, uh, but of course, he's wear, he wears many hats. Uh, most people call me DK. Uh, those are people that I've grown up with, mostly in activism, but also students. Uh, this is the name that I adopted when I, I, I decided to pick my path on the side of justice, uh, social justice. Uh, but at the same time, professionally, uh, I'll always be Kamau Ngoge for those uh, those who want to see my signature or want to see me wearing suits. But most of the time you'll find me, uh, the relaxed guy that you know, uh, very passionate about human rights. But on the other side, I'm a parent. I'm a father of girls. And uh, I also cherish the fact that uh, my mom also takes care of me, uh, <laughs> literally. She's the one to go to. Uh, and I can also say very well that uh, I have... Uh, uh, I also work at the community level. I'm a farmer, uh, so don't be surprised when you see me uh, under a cow mi- uh, milking it. Mm. Uh, don't be surprised when you see me um, uh, 
being service to the community. Uh, so I'm all manner of things, but the most important thing, I'm a human rights defender. Uh, having chosen this as a career, uh, because I, 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 I abhor um, anything to do with injustices. I don't like it when victims, people are victimized just, just because they're human beings that seem different from others. Wow. That's powerful. That's a powerful introduction about yourself. And actually something that caught my eye is you talking about suits. I think I've known you for quite some time and I, I think I can count the number of times I've seen you in a suit. <laughs> it's about being free. I love my freedom. Uh, and I also like people who interact with me to feel free, uh, to know that, look here, we are, we are, the titles come and go. Uh, you can call me your executive director today, but tomorrow, at the end of the day, you are just my fellow human being. We interact as uh, social beings. So I prefer a situation whereby we relate as equal. Uh, we, after all, we are just human beings. And for us, particularly, uh, people with great passion for defending other people's rights, you cannot create a barrier between you and the people that you purport to defend or to fight for their rights. So you must be uh, accessible. You, you must sit and uh, belong to the very people that you, you speak for. So I... But at the same time, you'll find me in different forums where you, you have to camouflage. You have to be part of the wider society. So, yes, sometimes you'll see also me in suits uh, if I have to engage with diplomats of government officials who feel that if you're at, if you're wearing a T-shirt, uh, you are not uh, qualified enough to be sitting in the, on their tables. But I can tell you for sure, it doesn't matter what you wear. It's what you believe in. It's the kind of uh, professionalism or con deep conversation that you're able to engage in. It's how you adopt and accept other people. That's what matters. Fantastic. Now, um, I've been privileged to be very close to you. I've been privileged. We've talked, we've shared stories. I remember uh, you gave me a history back then, how you started the journey, your journey in activism as a student. <laughs> yeah, um, to be honest with you, uh, I, I, I can't pinpoint when I started my journey in activism. Probably it started with the stories. And that's why I believe this conversation that you've started is very important. It started with my grandfather and my grandmother sharing uh, stories of uh, triumph, of uh, courage, of confidence, when they were part and parcel of the struggle for independence. Um, my grandmother was among the uh, few, uh, not few, but many women, but who are a few who are surviving that actually used to carry what they used to call BB uh, Shiaburi, uh, which is basically the uh, shit from uh, goats. And basically, what they meant is that they're carrying, they would lie to people that they are carrying manure, but actually they were carrying bullets uh, to support the fighters within the forest. And they would go through roadblocks uh, of, of, of people. Uh, who were fighting the, 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 our, our, our Lady Barish letters and successfully was able to play her part. But at the same time as she talks about her liberation or uh, her heroic uh, actions, she also talks about her uh, frustration that today she's among the many people who are forgotten as true heroes of this country. And when I remember my grandfather telling me how he used to have a, a, a shop and that was a holding ground for uh, ammunitions or foods. So it was basically like a store that was used to uh, collect foods and other items that then again was supporting the movement. So when you hear that, then you slowly you realize actually you are a member of a liberation family 
and uh, you you don't have a choice but to get the mantle. But fast tracking it, I as a as a, as a defender of uh, I would say rights of people or being outspoken. I think I was identified that by uh, a Catholic priest because the other thing maybe you don't know is I was on my path to uh, as a seminarian I was on my path to priesthood uh, in my early days and he identified that this one uh, probably may not follow the kind of uh, dogmas and protocols required in the church and said you know you're not among those people that we feel that you belong to that path but having said that still said look here you know there are so many calls you can have the call to be a priest, but you can also have a call to be a family man, but also you can have a call to be a fighter for justice and particularly social justice. But then fast forward at the university, um, luckily I was there at the time when um, there was some, some wonderful goodies that we used to enjoy uh, because the, the government then used to subsidize a lot of uh, higher education, was able to provide a lot of uh, things that are not available today. Uh, food, for example, having a three-course meal, uh, and which was really, I would say, really eroded. And they used to have ice cream, uh, you know, after every meal. Like that's something that was that people would not even think of today. But what we never realized then that actually it was a loan. So it's something that I paid for and I help, and I, I'm proud. Uh, I'm proud that I've been able to pay my debts for the university because I believe other students should also access the loans. Uh, I worry that today few people can access the kind of lifestyle we, we enjoyed a little bit. But let me also say that, again, was also that lifestyle was disrupted by structural adjustment programs uh, in the 90s that were introduced by uh, IMF and the World Bank, and which the government didn't have a choice because they had the, the government then had mismanaged the economy to the extent that they had to revisit uh, with the instruction for World Bank and IMF they had to revisit how the uh, the government was offering subsidies or was able uh, was providing for students and other healthcare and other factors, which was re- well, really affected. And that is that was the time when we started saying, uh, uh, trying to tell the government to be very careful on how they adopted uh, wholesale uh, all the prescriptions of World Bank IMF, and we we did out of uh, demonstrations. I remember in one of them, which I participated in. Uh, as one of the organizers, uh, one one student was killed in Moy University, Shadla Kopio, I can never forget him, uh, which is really sad that uh, the, how the government responds, it uses the police to use brute force to fight uh, its own people rather than trying to understand the grievances. I still believe that we had a better case than the government had, that you cannot adopt uh, structural adjustment programs without cushioning uh, people within the society that cannot afford them. So, and since then, you, you see that our health healthcare has been in disarray. Our education system was disrupted, and many other things, and which is not right. So, I still believe that we, I, 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 I can be judged that I was on the right side uh, of accepting or acknowledging that we need to do better than just to accept prescriptions from international uh, institutions that really affected on every ordinary citizen. Okay. Uh, maybe you just uh, touched, reflect on what you just spoke about. Um, when when was this? When, when when did you have this first demonstration, and what was it actually about? Because I think it's 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 important that we picture this that there is always something that triggers someone. 
to go into this cause as much as you've said you you are from this family that fought about for the liberation of this country and the first liberation freedom and everything but there is something that are, of course that triggered you as an individual and you said hey no enough is enough yeah <laughs> the, the thing is uh, it was it's, it's easy to be to sit on the comfort zone and and uh, whenever there is a variation in front of you uh, you say oh my god that is so wrong and then you do nothing about it that i find quite unsettling quite annoying i always prefer to say oh my god and then i ask myself so what can we do about it and that for me that's the basis of activism if you are a human rights defender you you don't sit back with a crowd and say someone else will do it you should be the one to see something bad happening and do something about it so in that particular instance we uh, that was in 1991 Uh, I don't want I know you want to get into the details on when I was born but <laughs> <laughs> but in 1991 is when the we we had the first demos uh, at the Moy University uh, and then but that was just one of the many things we had I think in my student career um, was we managed to organize other demonstrations in support of social justice acts for example during our period it's when the and the unregistered a university student association so which is a union for teachers for our lecturers and other workers uh, which was never registered for a long long time and for them to have a successful hearing they 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 their boycott was not sufficient it required the support of student community so i remember we sat with a few students and said look here we need to sit with the the student we, we need to sit with the lecturers and agree that we can support the course and we say look here we are going to uh, basically suspend our education so that their course could be heard so my biggest demo was to organize uh, with my other colleagues and we were able to ensure that student the student community support the wasu uh, grievances and for that reason we were suspended i think for uh, the school was carried out was disrupted for a whole year uh and then we didn't just sit back there we said if you are disrupted learning at the moy university uh and because we are studying in solidarity of uh the the, the workers and our lecturers mm-hmm. we also needed to do the same to other universities so what we did we we organized a network of uh university uh student organizations and therefore we moved from moy we went to kenyatta university we went to nairobi university we went to egerton universities which were the only public universities then and together we are getting mobilized to start now those kind of agitation the good thing uh, is that what the issues we are dealing with were also connecting with what was happening at the time uh, it was during the moise regime and i can tell you for sure that the level of repression uh, it's something that it's so hard to describe for example even when we were organizing our demonstrations we also had uh, snitches we used to call them snitches but these are people that were appointed by the government to monitors and to report on them we had a very active uh, special branch network that was reporting on all of us as students but having said that we, we we came to know who they were because they had their own clipboards like you when you going to uh, to the lessons they were there with you but you had to find a way to know who you can trust and who you cannot and we were able to still organize uh, without the, despite the level of uh, repression that was going on i can tell you for sure that um a lot of a lot of students were not able to complete their universities uh, there were so many uh, the snitches were able to 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 file so many disciplinary cases against the students and most of most were expelled i can tell you i i survived by a whisker 
I remember when I was supposed to be arrested, it, I was able to sneak out of the university because the same people, also some of them were also helpful. Uh, they were able to tell you, look, this is your day, please find your way out of this university. Mm. So it's it's a very interesting relationship because even when you have people who are, uh, are, are paid to watch over you, to, 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 to lie about you, sometimes you convert people when they realize actually you're doing the right thing mm. because even in social justice issues, don't, don't think that the people in government are not affected. Don't think people in the police service are not affected. They're affected and that's the reason why they also choose to uh, to support you in your courses. So I, I can tell you for sure, those are some of the many things that we did at the university. But what even was for me, the uh, even when it became the turning point, was when in 1992, uh, the ethnic crashes were instigated. And uh, at that point, it was so deliberate that the intention was to kick out uh, certain communities, particularly in the areas of Rift Valley, more so in Moro and Joro. By the way, those are my home villages, that's mm-hmm. where I come from, uh, where people are brutally attacked uh, by communities uh, within them, trying to tell them that you need to move out of here and go back to where you came from. You know, it's a very unsettling notion, whereby a place where you've been born and brought up, the people that have come there probably they are not necessarily uh, the original uh, residents of those places, but they moved there because they bought land, and then all of a sudden you're told to move out, and people are literally killed. That is when we organize a serious mission from the university to collect funds and blankets and food, and we distribute it to those. And then that was a cause for disciplinary action. Uh, I remember we were told to go to the to back home, and we had to go to report chiefs. Uh, every two weeks, just because we organize for communities to get food. Uh, but at that point, the state, of course, was the one that was sponsoring and then encouraging the mayhem that was taking place in the Rift Valley for political reasons. Because, of course, the, uh, the 1992 elections, uh, Moi and Khan were determined to win. But So anyone who was displaced was considered someone who was not acceptable. So, I mean, there are so many instances that I can tell you about, but... Uh, the struggle for Kenya has not been simple, but uh, and of course, most of the time, the struggle for Kenya people think are uh, the only people who hit the headlines. There are so many other people in the community that are drivers of the change that we have. Wow, that's a very candid reflection that you've had right there. But listening to you talk, I've just realized that you've actually spent 31 years of your life in this field. Every day, waking up every day, going to where violations have happened, trying to, you know, uh, find justice, seeking justice for these individuals, 31 years. That is, it's, actually, it's more years than my age. You've you've done this work for, I'm not even that age. That's powerful. Um, And I remember growing up myself, uh, growing up at some point, I used to hear serious demos by university students, um, I think it's in the early, early, early 2000s. I remember the, the, the university union, the students' union was very powerful across the country. And I think you, you guys benefited from that. You used to stop uh, <laughs> everything, every function of the government throughout the country. That, that was very powerful of you guys. Um, I, 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 I'm also privy to something come out that I would just want us to reflect about as well. Um, I know at some point you've sought asylum in Canada. <laughs> I even know that. 
I'm, I told you, I, I know a lot of things. Eh? You should be scared of me. No, I I'm know. not a government operator. Now you should get scared. You know too much. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> Can you, you mind tell, telling us more about it? How did you end up there? What had happened? How was the experience? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah to be honest with you, yeah, I, I have done my time uh, abroad. Um, and this is, it, it's something that I actually find that most of the people uh, in activism, they have had to, at some point, to, to, to run away for their lives. Uh, there is a time, even in a battle, that you know when to retreat and when to hide when things are so bad, and that's something that people need to say. It's not being, it's not, a, it's not cowardice to to step away when things are so hard. Sometimes you need to save your life so that tomorrow you'll be able to come and sit here and tell people your story. Um, my going to Canada was in early two thousand, uh, which I spent my time um, almost like ten years. Uh, but the, the, the purpose and the, the, the reason why I had to leave was uh, we were working for a pressure group at that time uh, called the People Against Torture. Mm. Uh, and this was, uh, again, a reaction to a lot of torture that was happening in this country. Mm. A lot of people hear that today in the law, uh, it requires that if you torture someone, that evidence would not be accepted in court. Mm. What people don't know is that Kenyan law uh, until pretty recently, in 2000s, after we fought so hard, it's only when that, that law was actually uh, done away with. Mm. It meant that the only, uh, or the only main uh, method of, of finding uh, someone guilty was always to beat the hell out of them. Mm. So people would be tortured so hard. So when you hear stories about the Nyao House torture chambers, it's real. The police refused all chose to not invest their time to do what they are trained for detective work, to investigate to be, uh, on a, a crime that has been committed, to get it right mm -hmm. before they go to take that case to uh, for, for the legal processes that is required so that then you're either found guilty or innocent. Instead, the shortcut, even today there's some tendencies of, by some of the police officers to still is, uh, resort to that, uh, yet it is unlawful that they beat the hell out of you you scream everything that you know all. You even lie about yourself so that you can be you can stop the beating. That has been, which is a very sad thing. In the country, in internationally, torture is actually has been prohibited. But in our constitution, the torture has been prohibited. In our laws, it has been prohibited. So we were working for a pressure group to do away with that provision of the law, where you could incriminate yourself by signing uh, a confession statement. So that group was called People Against Torture, and I worked with very, very committed people. So most of them, actually, most of the founder members were people who had undergone torture chambers. Uh, in, uh, they had undergone torture chambers. I remember, for example, Kangeda Mongai, uh, who was our coordinator. He was a, a former journalist. He, he was arrested uh, when he was running away from the police. He, Along Nakuru Highway, I, I, we still there's a bridge along the highway that we call Kangele Bridge. He he chose to jump from the from the bridge so that he can be hit by a vehicle because he was scared that if he would be arrested, the kind of torture he would undergo, he would rather die. And God works in many ways because he jumped from the bridge. There were moving vehicles, but he never died. Instead, he fractured his hand and his a little bit uh, injuries on his leg. So the police got him to him. They started stepping on the very hard that had already been fractured. 
So with those kind of tales of Kangenda Mungai, who was our coordinator, we thought we can't just sit back and just say, oh my God, you've gone through pain. Uh, you have survived Nyayo House uh, just because you were suspected of being a member of Mwa Kenya. So we said, no, we need to do something. So myself, uh, Kangenda Mungai, uh, a guy working with the Kenya National Commission of Human Rights called Kamanda Mucheke, uh, another person called Beatrice Kamau, among other people, uh, a brother to Wahome Mutahi, his name was uh, was also Mutahi, uh, decided to form a pressure group that would do away with the torture. So what we would do is that we were very daring. Would hear of we would basically welcome anyone uh, that has undergone torture, and we would go to court. We had we had a legal department which was led by one Kibe Mungai, uh, currently a lawyer. I know he serves a lot on cases on government. Uh, but Kibe Mungai was our strong advocate against torture. So he would, we would get, we would do a lot of research and then we would go to, uh, to, to court. And then we won quite a number of cases. And one of the things that we did was to challenge the, uh, the constitutionalism of uh, seeking confession through torture. Now, in some of the cases that I handled were very, 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 very sensitive. I remember some some guys. I think there were nine guys uh, that were uh, they were on a on a bus to I think towards uh, on Mombasa Road, and uh, they were intercepted by cops, and all of them were told to get out, and they were all shot uh, while lying down. Of course, the police narrative was there. There was exchange of fire. So what we did when we heard about that, we rushed there. We, we found how they had li- been lined up. We took photos uh, as usual and documented the stories. And then we were able to work together with IMLU, Independent Medical Legal Unit, and postmortems were done on their bodies. Then we told the world that, that was, it was ma- murder. These are people who were shot at cross ledge by officers. Um, and again, so because of those kind of cases, it's, it's, the cops were not happy with us, started running after us. I remember another case of... Uh, um, you know it, uh, an incident happened in Kamete Maximum Prison. They, apparently there was a jailbreak. Some, I think, six guys apparently jumped from that high wall. It's an extremely high wall. And they, all of them apparently fell and injured themselves because they're trying to escape. We, we had some intel, intelligence that indeed it's the cops that had just, the, the prison warders that had killed them. And then uh, created that scene as if they had uh, tried to, to run away. The truth of the matter, they had not tried to. So we, again, um, managed to get some, to, to talk with some of the wardens and who, who narrated how they were killed. But of course, they couldn't do it on camera. So we highlighted that story. We were able to, again with Imru, people against torture and Imru, to uh, organize for postmortems. Now, the interesting part is that there were two findings. And then the government uh, pathologist was a guy called Kirasi Orume. Uh, he wrote a very nice uh, postmortem report claiming that uh, those guys had fallen from a high wall and therefore they died of trauma. And, but then he was conducting the same postmortem with another guy. His name was Jue, and Jue was the head of the provincial head, uh, the, the, the provincial medical officer of health at the Inyeri Hospital, PGH. Uh, and he said, no, that's not true. You can't fall. If you fall, it means you'll die from such level and you'll only have one injury on only one place. But these guys were fractured from their fingers, their toes, their, their heads, their, their bums. Everything was all broken. Then they were asking, 
those are multiple injuries. That means the, someone has been, you can't fall and then start rolling and so that you break so many ribs. Instead, it was clear that they had been beaten up and killed. Now, that story was also very, uh, very, very uh, tough. It led to the arrest of all the officers, and I can tell you for sure that there was conviction. Uh, but I can tell you that that was one case that put a lot of pressure on some of us who were taking lead, and we had to run away from this country for a bit because the pressure was just too much. But that's those are some of the cases, but there were so many others that were part of uh, that where we had to take a break. So yes, now your story, what you're saying is, is, uh, is true. Sometimes I took a 10-year break from the work, uh, moved to Canada, where I uh, I met another very, very strong human rights activist and defender that had fled Kenya. They left Kenya again in similar or different circumstances just because of speaking truth to power, because of defending rights. What we are happy is that the, some of those guys who are still are back, uh, we do a lot of activis- activism together, mm-hmm. and we say, look, it was not in vain that uh, we took a break, and here we are uh, encouraging others and supporting others to, pe- to participate in, uh, in activism, rather to speak truth to power, to be able to, to stand for what is just, what is right. You're listening to the Justice Watches podcast, a joint from the National Coalition for Human Rights Defenders in Kenya. We champion the safety, security, and well-being of human rights defenders in Kenya. We'd be happy to know the kind of insights that your immersion into the world of human rights defenders in Kenya has offered you today. For suggestions and feedback, log on to www.defenderscoalition.org. Visit our Facebook at Defenders Coalition, Twitter at Defenders KE, Instagram at Defenders KE, or call us directly on 716-200-100 for any emergencies. I'm actually at the age of my seat right now because listening to some of the stories that you're sharing, one that has actually caught my attention is the one for Kangede. Do you imagine, I don't know whether you guys can picture this, do you imagine jumping off a bridge because you are scared that the guys who are running after you will catch you and you can't imagine the amount of torture that they're going to put you through. So the best thing for you to do is to actually just jump and just die then. I cannot fathom that. How horrible was this kind of government? How horrible was this regime? How inhumane it was? Unfortunately, it still happens. Uh, it was, we're not, we're not, it's not just about past tense that it happened before. Uh, I know a lot of people today that uh, are crying for justice because their sons uh, and daughters are being killed every day, uh, extrajudiciary, just because our police officers don't want to do serious investigations and to hold people based on evidence and take them to court. Instead, they're choosing to just suspect individuals and shoot them instead of taking through the justice process, which is quite wrong. I also know people that today, just because they speak truth to power, they are on the run because they're so scared that just because of what probably they, they, they said, I know a lot of journalists that have to, ha- to run away because the stories that they wrote, which are quite factual, uh, now they, are, they have to be on the run because they will die. Uh, if they are caught and sometimes people prefer when you don't have an option people say I'd rather jump from that bridge rather than uh, be caught because of speaking the truth that's very challenging totally totally agree with you 
and you've you've just spoken about people having to run away people having to run away there is one case that i know every kenyan alive who's i think let me assume put this a very heavy assumption every kenyan who's 15 years and older might be very much aware aware of this story the the, the forceful um asylum or, or rather the forceful um eviction of one human rights defender a lawyer a constitutional lawyer uh, miguna miguna who is uh, actually who has written about you in one of his books um could you just shed more light about that <laughs> um yes miguna miguna is the one you're talking about yes and he has mentioned me in two of his books for sure um i think he's the most brilliant uh honest uh patriot that i've ever met miguna miguna has that kind of intelligence uh he's so intelligent that if you ever have a conversation with, with miguna miguna he will remember it for years on end and he will never lose any detail uh he pre- he describes uh at a time in when he had visited kenya and i met him uh and i hosted him in my house as an activist i remember I was staying in a just two room house and when miguna came i didn't have any place to, to to host him i told him my man can you just come and share with me what i have you know what i did i had an extra room but he never had a bed so i went and bought a mattress and some bed sheets that's why he slept on the floor like i was on the next in <laughs> the next room with my friends we were sharing so it it's someone who is so down to earth and someone who knows what it is to 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 say no to violations because he has gone had gone through a lot of violations as a, as a person he's among the student leaders uh, that were not liked just because they spoke truth to power and the, the, uh, the education the, the university of nairobi uh, chose to expel them and even when they were expelled they had to escape the country because they could have ever been killed or tortured and he had to go to canada at a period when there were very few black people and he has to had to survive on his own in a foreign country and if you don't know about canada it's pretty cold it's winters are are painful i can tell you there's nothing that you can compare cold i know you uh, uh, i know you've been to mount kilimanjaro and i know you've been to mount kenya at the top there at the summit that's how it feels when you're in canada mm-hmm. uh, when it's uh, winter period and he has survived so many years there but one thing he has always uh, done is that he has learned to fight mm. for injustices and he doesn't back down and if he says something about you which is positive mm. it's because it is the things as they are mm. if they say something negative about you because it's because it is things as they are so as a friend every time he has been here uh, i have met him and we we catch up on many things mm. but what also worries me is that his honesty has landed him in trouble mm. a lot of people think that he uh, he 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 is loud or rather he he can confront you uh and therefore uh you are a bad person i think that someone who confronts you with the truth mm. is a good person because they don't hide behind your back uh calling a sword wanting to 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 kill you mm. they'll tell you what it is and then it's over so but with we have um as a country where there is a lot of intolerance in fact i worry that this country kenya today is like a battlefield everyone has a grudge and everyone want to fight uh instead of 
having a country that is so peaceful that everybody would wish the other one the best. Instead, we are looking for the worst in you and we only want to fight it. Just look at our social media. We are always fighting each other. You can post your photo there and people will not look at the positive part of it. They look at the negative part of it and they'll and it will tread. The negative part will tread. So the the worry is that we have a, a country that doesn't accept or appreciate its profits. Miguna is a victim of a good is a victim of that saying that people don't appreciate their good profits. So for me, I have a lot of respect for him. He's a very sharp lawyer. He's a very committed patriot. And I can't, I can't believe that anyone would not want him around. I wish he was around to contest for the presidency or to, to, to contest for uh, the governor of Nairobi again, because those are the kind of leaders that we want in this country. People who are honest, people who believe in their country, and they're not driven by, by uh, filling their tummies with money that is being stolen from other people. Wow, that's great. Uh, great to hear your reflection on that. But I, I would also want to know, I, I remember um, when Miguna was um, at the airport in 2018. Yeah, it was 2018. Um, you were there. You witnessed what happened. You witnessed um, the way the government was really harassing and uh, putting all these kind of pressure, man of pressure on him. What was going on in your head when you were witnessing all that yeah i i think i for me there was nothing that i did not expect that governments can't do uh, and i know if honestly the list of people that have been killed in this country uh even recently good people it's almost address yeah if if you think of why did for example chris mosado die did he commit a crime or did he commit on national TV that he'll ensure in his portfolio, he'll ensure that the uh, elections will be free and credible. Mm. That is the reason why we, we lost him. Mm. I knew that Miguna Miguna, by speaking truth to power, he's expected that people are not happy, that people who are not happy with genuine people mm. that speak truth to power. Mm. So I was not really surprised. Of course, I was not happy. I was not angry. But most importantly, as, uh, as a, someone who runs an organization that supports uh, human rights defenders uh, who, is, who are concerned about the defenders' safety, security, and their well-being. Uh, we had to be part of the process to try to intervene to ensure that his rights as a citizen of this country are respected, mm. that you cannot just be deported just because you're not happy with me. Mm. I mean, we, people should be able to deal with, the, uh, with challenges that they or, or, or any kind of grievances they have through the later procedures. We have courts of law. But for the government, in fact, that is my, my biggest worry. The fact that the government, which believes, which claims to believe in democracy and the rule of law, would send away its citizen and do it in the most brutal way. In fact, Miguna has said he had to be sedated to be kicked out of this country. How That's the things, we sedate animals when you're transferring them from Asaimara to say Serengeti. You don't sedate human beings. You don't believe in the rule of law and you're running a government and then you, you don't obey those court orders and you expect citizens to sit back and obey the rule of law. Look here, what my biggest worry was, the government is demonstrating its might, but also the citizens are going to copy that. So don't be surprised when people start killing each other, there is violence taking place in Pokot or is violence taking place in Laikipia. People have learned to not trust key institutions that were set up to mitigate or to address grievances. 
the, the government of Kenya has refused to, to, to take the front seat. Mm-hmm. For me, that was the lesson from Miguna's case, mm-hmm. that this is a citizen mm-hmm. who the courts have declared that he's a citizen of Kenya and should be allowed back, mm-hmm. but have consistently refused to obey court orders. Mm-hmm. What that means is that we are destined this country to anarchy. What people call banana republic, where people don't care about the rule of law or judgments don't make any sense to people. Mm-hmm. They should. We have to make sure that in a country like Kenya, we should trust, we should respect institutions that have been set up to manage various elements. Whether it is grievances, we need to trust the courts. If it's elections, we have to trust the IEBC, but they also have to deliver so that people can trust them. That's my worry that the police force should be. It should be as objective, should be professionally run. It should not be the kind that is guiding uh, the, uh, it's behaving in a way as if they know law. It should be the kind that is so professional that whenever we see a police officer, we should be proud to walk to them whenever we have a challenge. That's the kind of institutions that we need in Kenya. I totally agree with you, and I would just also want to reflect on one incident. You see, we've had um, very many court orders uh, directing different uh, missions, Kenyan mission in Canada, to facilitate um, the return of Miguna into this country. But unfortunately, the government has chose to just ignore those orders. It's very unfortunate. Miguna is unable to come back, but for you, you are here in this country. We want to know, or rather just give us a paint a picture of why you actually came back and what was the motivation. Because most of us, when we go abroad, we say, hey, these are greener pastures. I'm not even going back to that country. Because they are, of course, there are uh, better opportunities and we also have the potential for this country to build the economy and have all these uh, greener pastures over here. But we have to uh, also um, accept that the other side of the, uh, of the continent of the world is, is, has more opportunities to offer than what we have here. And you chose to come back. I need to clarify that, in fact, uh, Africa and Kenya, to be specific, has more opportunities than what people think is there abroad. People abroad are suffering. I can tell you right, left and center, they, they are doing the kind of stuff you, you want to do with your level of qualification. What people admire about most of those countries abroad is that they respect you as a citizen and whatever you do, it's also protected in various ways. If you're a worker, you'll be treated uh, according to the law that exists. So you'll always get what is genuinely yours. And this is exactly what we need in this country. What we have in Kenya are so many opportunities, but they are concentrated in a few hands. So what we need is to be able to uh, take advantage of the opportunities that are here, and then we can build a country that is quite strong and able to compete with those abroad. Look here, if you look at the many companies that are moving to Kenya, that tells you this is where the opportunities are. The, the, key, the, word, the key word is developed and developing country. Mm. A developed country, what are you taking there? What is this that they need to innovate now that has not been tried before? But in this country, there are so many opportunities. We, we are developing uh, industrially. You know, we are the countries that are the most developed culturally. Mm. So don't forget that. When you talk of the first world, we are the first world culturally because we still believe in our cultures. Uh, industrially, probably, yes, we could be third world because we have reached that level of uh, technological advancement. Mm-hmm. Having said that, it's the way institutions are run uh, it, based on the law that exists. Mm-hmm. It's about how people trust 
that the institutions for grievances will take care of them. If you want to register a company here in Kenya, you should know how much hard you have to go to. Mm. But if they break those barriers, then you had better invest here. Mm. Having said that, there are times when when you recognize that sometimes people have to get out of the country when their lives are at risk. Mm. That's those are the times when all the opportunities that for growth beyond what you're doing that probably that is out there. But don't walk out of the country thinking that you're going to find better opportunities. People are struggling there. In fact, the residents of those countries themselves are struggling and they are looking forward to go out to a country like Kenya where they can also try because there are many opportunities. So that I can tell you for sure that I am proud to be a Kenyan living in Kenya. Uh, I also know that I travel a lot because of work. I'm always happy when I travel and get back home. Every time I'm back in my country, I feel like kissing the soil and say I'm glad to be Kenyan. <laughs> we, are, we are also glad to be Kenyan together. Uh, we join you, we, in, in, we share the same sentiments with you. Now, um, 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 we are now in a new era. Let me call, call it a new era. Um, the 90s kind of activism, we now have a new constitution. Uh, it is not the same constitution that was there then, that uh, had so many loopholes for people to abuse other people. We, now, we are living in a new constitution. Um, would you, how, how would you compare uh, the differences in, in the environment for activists back then and the one that we have now? Yeah, the, I, okay. Um, I must say that uh, uh, we are in a better Kenya comparatively. We should be in an even better Kenya if we did, if we did things right. Mm-hmm. One of the things that every human rights defender of the 90s do is to feel proud that they participated in the second liberation and that we have delivered a constitution that really provides for respect for human rights. Uh, it provides for the kind of leadership uh, that is, can govern this country. It also provides for separation of powers. What happened in the older constitution is that power was concentrated on the on only one arm of government, the executive and the presidency in particular. Therefore, the presidency would basically guide, uh, the judiciary would actually guide parliament. So all those institutions are helping to consolidate power on an individual. And therefore, the guy, whoever is in charge, had a blank check to do whatever he wants. Uh, when you're in a dictatorship, it means that uh, you have no voice. So what the new constitution 2010 has done is to, 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 to deal with those kind of gaps that existed before. And I am I'm, I'm happy that there exists very various provisions, particularly the Bill of Rights, that uh, allows us to enjoy a lot of freedoms uh, that even now, uh, things that we take for granted, being able to belong to as many political to, to be to be in a political, of your, political party of your choice, yet it used to be you had to belong only to one party called Canoe, Kenya African National Union. Uh, so those are little th- liberties that uh, try to really joke around with, yet they are so important. So the activism in Kenya then and now, therefore, is different. First of all, there's been so many changes. You look at from technology, part of it, um, anyone right now without a phone, people ask, what do you mean you don't have a phone? Okay, in my time in the 90s, a phone, um, I think the only, past, the only fa- the first time I saw a phone, or, or rather a cell phone, was in uh, 1996. And I think he was among five or six people 
civilians that were allowed to carry that phone. And I remember his bill because I was, uh, and I can tell you who this person is because I was working for him. His name is, he, he recently passed away. His name is Dr. Richard Leakey. He's actually my mentor, someone I respect a lot, uh, who passed on recently, actually who financed some of my education and has been our mentor, is among the people who I was able to pay our tickets when we were going abroad to seek for uh, uh, opportunities abroad to run away from the, 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 the risk that we were faced with that time. So he remains a very special person in my, in my growth. So um, but what I'm saying is that some of, um, the people like him uh, were had a phone when, and every every month before we pay the bill, which was I remember it was two hundred fifty thousand Kenya shillings, you had to take that phone to the that time I don't remember the agency, but it was like the communication commission. But then also it had to go through the NIS of the time that was a special brand to be assessed which calls and where you had made those calls, and we had to give a detailed explanation of the calls and where those calls were made. So. The, now today, and we used to admire looking at him making that phone call. Uh, today, everyone has a phone, which is now a tool for both advocacy, for communication. Mm. But of course, now it's also a dangerous tool because that's what is being used to, to listen into people's conversation, mm. to monitor people's movement, and actually it's also being used to track people and kill them. Mm. So, which is very sad that the advancement in technology uh, is, has also a negative part of it. But so all I'm saying is that these are different times. The, the variations may seem similar, but the strategies that people now can use are quite uh, are different. So you'll find, for example, uh, whenever, whenever we were planning for an activity, let's say, for example, a demonstration, probably we would, we would organize it for two weeks in advance, but then we could only meet maybe once a week because we didn't want to be tracked. So we would, we would agree in a meeting that we meet on Friday at 4 p.m., uh, we used to meet somewhere at the city hall at 4 p.m. No one would fail. We will make sure that you don't fail because if you don't, if you fail on that appointed date, when you had to physically meet, it meant that you will not meet again or you will not know what happened. So we were disciplined. So today you can just make a phone call and you can still do a lot of things. So basically all I'm saying is that these gadgets, you can use them for advocacy online. Uh, you can Right now, we are going to communicate. We are communicating using technology. We can reach more people. Mm. Like, this is kind of a radio. Remember that time there was only one radio station, the Voice of Kenya, uh, which means that you are limited in terms of content, and it was only operational from six in the morning until midnight, and it was providing opportunities for different uh, vernacular uh, languages. So it's different. Right now, we can communicate uh, a lot. Having said that, I think the what we need in the current activism is to learn uh, from what has happened before and take the best of it and utilize it to build on because now we have more tools, we have much more better equipment for advocacy. Mm. So I feel that it's only that time has changed uh, and therefore I wouldn't expect that uh, we would have uh, the kind of the level of uh, with the new constitution, I wouldn't want us to have the level of uh, repression against activists and uh, pro-democracy actors that used to be. Mm. The sad part, of course, uh, that is not the reality. We still have a lot of repressive acts against uh, people who speak truth to power. So um, I feel that you people currently doing activism have are so lucky to have uh, many many opportunities. And finally, the other opportunity that I feel human rights defenders have today, they never had. They never had mechanisms for protection and safety. Uh, there was nowhere to run. 
So you either had to run to jail or you had to run out of the country. Today you don't have to run out of your country. There are so many organizations right now as an activist you can run to to offer you support if you're being unfairly treated or unfairly targeted because you are doing the right thing at your community. The National Coalition of Human Rights Defenders, for example, sits and stands with activists who are in danger because they speak to the, to power. We go to court as an organization to defend human rights defenders. We offer psychosocial support. We never heard about psychosocial support as activists. That does not mean that we didn't have to deal with gruesome, gruesome cases of people who had been tortured or killed and we had to go to uh, to witness post-mortems. We had to go through that. So I think what we need to do is to take advantage of available resources, services, and tools that are there for human rights defenders to do better. But what I can beg, actually beg people to do is not to sit back and imagine that they'll face reprisals and therefore they'll not speak. Just speak up. Do something. There are people who will start with you, who will defend you. That is a powerful parting shot. You have actually crowned the conversation. It's the best icing on the cake that we could ever have Thank you. for this episode. Thank you so much, Kamau, for the candid conversations, the very in-depth discussions that you've shared with us. These are stories that maybe some of them have had, some of them have not had, and I know most of us will be very happy to listen to these kind of uh, stories from time and again from different various uh, human rights defenders, be it young, be it veterans, be it any type of orientation, be it, it it's, it's, it's not, this space is not discriminative. We welcome all ideas, we welcome um, such conversations to have from different angles, sharing perspectives of what we think activism is like and what is the future of activism in this country. Thank you so much, Mr. Kamau, for uh, Uh, sitting with us today. Thank you. Um, I, from me to you, uh, I would want to say adios. Listen to us again next time. Bye-bye. This is the Justice Watchers podcast, where we dive deep inside the world of human rights defenders in Kenya. We appreciate your audience. We encourage you to share this podcast episode on all your social media platforms. Tune into our next episode, same channel on all podcasting platforms, championing the safety, security, and well-being of human rights defenders in Kenya.